Welcome to Celebration Church's podcast. We hope this helps you to know God better and trust Him more. To learn more about Celebration Church, please visit us at celebrationchurchlive.com. We kicked off a new series last week. We kicked off a series called Shouts and Whispers. And in this series, we're simply looking at these places that in the Old Testament that if, if we're not too careful, we can see, we'll be reading about Jesus as we're reading in the Old Testament, and we'll miss it. We'll miss Jesus. He's right there in front of us. The references to Christ, the references to what he was going to do are right in front of us, and we can just flat miss it. And so that's what we're doing. We're delving in for the next... <coughs> Um, over a 10-week period, and looking at just a handful of these. The, the, the word is just rich with them, and we're just looking at a handful of them. So if you've got your version app open, if you've got your, your, your bulletin we handed you on the way in ready, then this is where we're going to start with this concept, is that to know God better and trust Him more, that we need to see that Jesus has been part of the God-man story all along. He's been a part of this all along. It's not that there was God was doing something on the planet, and then all of a sudden this Jesus guy shows up on the scene. And all of a sudden, here he is, and, and now the whole narrative changes. No, it's, still, it's the same narrative. The narrative didn't change. Jesus didn't all of a sudden hijack the God story. It was there all along. Christians didn't come along and hijack what God had been doing with the Jews and what God had been doing with the Hebrew people. This, Jesus was part of this, was, was prophesied that he was going to come. This was part of the plan the whole time. And, and we get a richer, deeper understanding of who Jesus is when we look and, and see where he's at. Because see, the, the truth is that sometimes things can be right in front of us. We can see them, hear them, and we just kind of have the wrong lens and we just don't, we just don't get it quite right. Um, there's a lot of times, anybody ever mis- misheard a song lyric? And you sang what you thought was right with boldness? I mean, you just put it out there. You just laid it out there. Man, and you just, just knew you had it right. And, you know, and, a, and a lot of the, the artistry, some of the poetry of our more modern music... Um, you know, some of those writers kind of take some liberties with some stuff, you know, and some of it doesn't make sense all the time. So you can sing a lyric that doesn't make sense with a little bit of confidence because sometimes the lyrics don't make sense. But then there's other places, um, it's like, no, that, that, how did you even put that together? How did that even happen? And so there's a, there's a saying in, in my family when somebody just completely goes rogue with what was said. That something gets said, and then somebody just takes it and hijacks it and carries it in a complete wrong direction. And there's a phrase we'll throw out that if it happens, this phrase gets chunked out, and we know, okay, well, we need to, we need to reevaluate what we're doing and what we thought was said. Um, because um, I'm the oldest of three kids. I have two younger sisters. And my youngest sister, um, uh, was we were raised on country music. So growing up in Odessa, we were raised on good old country music. And so, anyway, so there was a, there was a song, I believe it's by the Oak Ridge Boys, but I, I may have this part wrong. Um, and, but it's called uh, Juliet. 
And so, and there's this guy singing all these different pieces of harmony, and you got the bass guy and whatnot, but there's a line um, that says, Juliet, Juliet, um, you've got a smile that I can't forget. On the day we met, I made a bet. Someday I'd win the love of Juliet. Okay, those lyrics make sense. Thought flow, it all makes sense. Well, my baby sister heard something else. And she sang it with confidence. And if she had thought about it for just a second, she would have gone, this makes no sense at all. But she was sitting there singing, and we caught her one day, and she's singing, Juliet, oh, Juliet, you got a smile that I can't forget on the day we met. I made a bet, tomato in the love of Juliet. <laughs> tomato in the love. What does that even mean? Tomato in the love, and she sang it with such confidence. So to this day in our Clark household, if somebody just goes rogue with something that was said, we say, tomato in the love. And then everybody knows we need to recalibrate this. Something went awry. And it can, it can happen so easily. So there's a, in fact, uh, Colin, uh, my, my uh, five-year-old, there's this cheesy little uh, rap song, wannabe rap song that's on YouTube of this guy who's trying to be kind of thug, kind of be hood, and he's just not. And so he's throwing out all the stuff of mainstream rap music to make you tough and all this. And, and so he, he's singing the song, but it's, it's real catchy and it's real cheesy. And um, anyway, so uh, my older kids will kind of quote lines from this at different times from this cheesy song. And so my my five-year-old has picked this um, has picked this up, but it's got a line in it um, that says that um, if you ain't about money, then I don't mess with y'all. And so, and anyways, and so Colin then turned this into the most unthug, untough song ever. And she's just singing it. She's singing it in the shower last night. She's just in the shower, and she says. If you take my money, then I won't mess with y'all. Right. So if I rob you, you're just going to let it happen. This is the most unthug thing ever wrapped, ever. But it's probably the truth. <laughs> She's like, you know, don't beat me up. You can have the money. And so, but it's so, it's so easy. It's so easy to sit here and, and think you get it and don't get it. And so, and that's part of why we're looking at this series, because there were those who, who were steeped in the, all of the prophetic stuff that was about Jesus, all of these different things, and they thought they knew what Messiah was going to do, and they thought they knew what Messiah was going to look like, and then Messiah comes, and Messiah suffers, and Messiah dies, and then there's this resurrection thing that's blowing everybody's mind and then we're going to catch up in, in Luke 24 where we're kind of launching out of this every week. Because we see that Jesus himself comes back and begins not to try to pull things and explain things forward. But he actually goes back to the scriptures and says, look, this, is, this isn't anything new. Let's understand this in context of the scriptures. So here we are on resurrection day, a little late later in the day, not resurrection morning at the empty tomb, but this is resurrection day, same day, a few hours later, 
down on a lonely road, on a, a road to Emmaus, and there's a couple of disciples who are walking and talking, and they're confused. And we pick up with them in Luke 24, 24. It says, and then some of our companions went to the tomb, and they found it just as the women had said. But they did not see Jesus, and he, he this is Jesus, said to them. Now, they don't realize they're talking to Jesus at this time. And he says, and he said to them, how foolish you are, and how slow to believe all that the prophets have spoken. He didn't even expect them to believe the women who saw the empty tomb and, and saw it empty. He didn't even expect them to believe that. He expected to, to believe what had been written, what had been spoken. He says, did not Messiah have to suffer these things and then enter his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said and all the scriptures concerning himself. So he goes back and he begins to open up the scriptures, things they were already familiar with, things they already knew, and begin to show that he was there all along. That this had been prophesied, that something, things didn't go off the tracks with the, with the crucifixion and the resurrection. Jesus didn't hijack this story. This had been happening all along. And so this morning, what we we're going to look at is we're going to look at a reference we actually sang about today. This morning, we, the last song we sang was The Lion and the Lamb. And if you're new to this whole thing, for us to come in here and, and, and sing with, with gusto, Our God is a Lamb, then you kind of could scratch your head if you don't have the context. And maybe if that's you this morning, maybe you don't have a whole lot of biblical context, and that's fine. You're in, you're in the right place. We love you, and we, we, we want to help you move forward in this. But... We're, we've got to put it in context. Because see, Jesus is revealed in the scriptures as the lamb that would be provided. And we're going to look first at the shout. We're going to look first at the shout. And it was a literal shout in the New Testament. And then we're going to go back and we're going to see the whisper that was given to us in the Old Testament. So let's look at the story of John the Baptist in John chapter 1 verse 29 and John has been baptizing and and he had he had already had, had baptized Jesus and and then we see John 129 it says and then the next day Jesus he saw Jesus coming towards him and said behold the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world behold exclamation point, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Now, if we don't know what the Lamb of God is, that makes no sense. If you don't know the culture, now he's speaking to Hebrew people. He's speaking to, to Jewish people who understand all this context. But if it's just you, just you and I have no Bible knowledge, no anything, this, this could make as much sense as... As Jesus, behold, the, the cauliflower of God who takes away the sin of the world. If, we don't, if cauliflower was never used as a metaphor, then it makes no sense. Which it wasn't. Don't go do a word study for cauliflower. You're not going to find it. But if there's no context, if it was not used as a metaphor, it makes no sense. But it was. It's one of the main metaphors of the scriptures. And we're going to play this, this fun little game of connect the dots this morning. 
Because you see, John didn't just shout at one time. He goes on and he shouts it again in John 1.35. says, the next day John was standing with two of his disciples, two of John's own disciples. And he looked at, <clears throat> at Jesus as he walked by and said, behold the Lamb of God. End of statement. Behold the Lamb of God. And the two disciples heard him say this. And they followed Jesus. He makes this statement. They heard it. And they left following John the Baptist. And started following Jesus. This has to be some power packed statement. For them to switch their allegiance. For them to switch who they're going to follow. Behold the Lamb of God. This must be some powerful, big, huge thing for them to go, oh, wow, oh, we've been following you, John the Baptist, but you've just said this is the Lamb of God. Thank you, John. We're now following over here. This has got to be some big thing. Here's just a funny little side note is that one of those two that heard that was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother who then brings Peter to Jesus, and it makes that connection. But see, we're, to, to come back and to get, the, to get the whisper in this, let's go to Genesis 22. And we're going to go to a passage of Scripture that to us in our modern, western, sensitive society, um, we have a really, really hard time with wrapping our minds around what God was doing in this moment. And I don't have the full time to explain why God would ask Abraham to do this. But it has huge significance and it's a total, it's a different message. But I want you to track with me on this, okay? We're, we're going somewhere. And in Genesis 22, we're just going to start in verse 1. It says, after these things, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham... And he said, here I am. Um, God ever calls your name? Here I am is a good response. I'm right here, God. I, I'm ready. Speak to me. And he said, take your son, your only son whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah. And offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I will tell you. I realize that request is mind-blowing. I don't get it. I'm just going to tell you right now. Um, I, I cannot be Abraham. I've got three boys. I can't be Abraham. There's a reason this isn't written about Brandon Clark. As I said, sorry, God. I can't do this. I just can't. But Abraham had a, had a different relationship with God than Brandon Clark does. And he trusted God. And he understood that God was up to something that was bigger than what was going on. And Abraham chooses to walk this path. And on the backside of this, I'm so grateful Abraham um, was a father of our faith. And he stepped out and he did this. And again, that's a, that's a different message. But he tells him that he's going to go to the land of Moriah. So he wasn't already in the land of Moriah. He has to go there. And he says, and there's going to be a mountain, and I, I'm going to point it out. I'm going to show you where this needs to go down. So Abraham rose early in the morning, and he saddled his donkey and took two of his young men with him 
and his son Isaac. And he cut the wood for the burnt offering and, and arose and went to the place of which God had told him. And on the third day, Abraham lifted up his eyes and saw the place from afar. So they traveled for three days. Okay, They're traveling, they're going, and then they finally see the place from a distance. So it's not like it was a, just a three-day journey. It's even longer than a three-day journey they were at. So what God was wanting to do, he wanted... He wanted Abraham to do it in a specific spot. Abraham didn't live there. Abraham didn't hang out there. Abraham didn't do that. But he's like, what we're about to, what's about to happen, this whole exchange, I want you to go to a specific spot on the planet. And we're going to go over there. So he sees it from afar. And then Abraham said to his young men, stay here with the donkey. I and the boy will go over there and worship and come again to you. Hebrews talks about what kind of statement of faith that is. Hebrews says that Abraham reckoned that God was going to raise Isaac up, that he would be resurrected if he had to, if he had to take his life. And here's, a, here's where Hebrews shores that up is because Abraham tells his guys, me and my boy are going to go over here and we're going to worship and we're going to come back to you. And so, and Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering, and then he laid it on Isaac, his son. And he took his, in his hand the fire and the knife, and so they went both of them together. So he's got the fire in one hand, the knife in the other, and Isaac's carrying the wood on his back. And Isaac said to his father, said to Abraham, his father, my father, and he said, here I am, my son. And he said, Behold the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb? Where's the lamb? We've got everything we need for this, Dad. But we're missing the lamb here. Isaac begins to go, something's awry. Something's off here. And Abraham says this statement. God will provide for himself. The lamb for a burnt offering, my son. So both of them went together. I love the way the modern King James Version phrases this. And it says, and Abraham said, my son, God will provide himself a lamb for a burnt offering. So they both went off together. Abraham makes the declaration, the prophetic declaration that God was going to provide a lamb for himself. That everything, that all this was going to come down to this place of a lamb being provided. And then we go on to verse 9. It says, And then they came to the place where God had told him, and Abraham built an altar there and laid the wood in order and bound Isaac his son and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. And then Abraham reached out his hand and he took the knife to slaughter his son. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, here I am. And he said, do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God, seeing that you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. Do we see any parallel to the language of John 3, 16? For God so loved the world that he gave 
his one and only son that whoever would believe in him would not perish. We see some parallels of some of the language we have put together here. It says, and Abraham lifted up his eyes and he looked and behold, <clears throat> behind him was a ram caught in a thicket by his horns. And Abraham went and he took the ram and he offered up as a burnt offering instead of his son. And so Abraham called the name of that place, the Lord will provide. And as it is said to this day, on the mount of the Lord, it will be provided. Those of you who've been on this journey a while may know some of the covenant names of God. There is Jehovah uh, uh, Jireh. And Jehovah Jireh means my God, the provider, God who provides. There's only one time in the whole Bible that God's covenant name of Jehovah Jireh is mentioned. And it's right here. Right here. It says in the mount was called Jehovah Jireh. God provides. God provides. See, he made the declaration that God was going to provide a lamb. And then what was provided in the thicket wasn't a lamb. It wasn't fulfilled in that moment. There was a ram. And the ram took care of the business and finished out the thing that, that God wanted done in that spot. Where there was a plant man he was in covenant with who was willing to give his own son. It was done in Abraham's heart. And God said, nope, don't do it. And so God sits there with his covenant partner, Abraham, and sits there and, and tells Abraham, okay, you have, you've taken this far enough. I see that you would not withhold. Finish this stuff with this ram. And then he left and he went back home and he came back down just as he said and goes back to join his, his two hired hands and they go back to continue to live life. See, I want us to look and see that God used an obscure place to become the launching pad for world change. God used an obscure place. So many times we think, maybe think we've got we've to be somewhere else. We've got to be somewhere notable. We've got to be somewhere important for incredible things to happen. But guess what? Guess what? At some point, every place was obscure. Every place was random every place was odd until somebody decided to move forward and, and do something significant so guess what you don't need to be anywhere other than where you are when God shows up there's something significant remember that we said he, for him to take his son and go on this go on this journey and go on this journey to Mount Moriah let's look at 2nd Chronicles 3 1 right quick 2nd Chronicles 3 1 says then Solomon began to build the temple of the house of the Lord in Jerusalem. He begins to build the temple where all of the Jewish uh, worship was going to take place. And he begins to build it on Mount Moriah where the Lord had appeared to David his father at the place that David had appointed on the threshing floor of Ornan the Jebusite. So here is, there was nothing there. When Abraham is told to go, here is what I love, is that I love that God is outside of time. God understands the end from the beginning, and he's outside of time. And sometimes we think God has to take us 
today and line us up with something that's already taken place in the, in the past. I loved it that God took Abraham and he took him and lined him up with something that was going to happen in the future. It was, there was no Jerusalem there. There was no city there. There was nothing significant there. And he led him to this place that all of a sudden at some point in the future was going to have this huge significance. Abraham couldn't see it in the moment. Abraham couldn't see it in the moment, but there was going to be something significant that was going to come out of that place. See, what you might not know is there this, this ordinance floor or arunan, whoever, whatever translation you're reading, this floor that there was actually this, this time under the realm of King, of, of King David, that there was this death that was sweeping through Jerusalem, and it was brought on by David's sin. And it's coming through, and, and David is crying out to God, and, and this, this death and destruction stop at Ornan's floor. It stops at this threshing floor right here. And David builds an altar there, and that's where he, he buys this from Ornan, and, and he makes the statement, I won't make a sacrifice, I won't make a sacrifice or do something that costs me nothing, because Ornan tried to just give it to, give him, give him the place in uh <clears throat> the land. And so here we are. We have the place where the sin and destruction are halted. We have this place where the lamb was going to be provided. We have this moment where we see that there was this one and only son who was willing to be given. And now we come forward to John chapter 11. John chapter 11, we're here in this place. This is the second temple of Judaism. That first temple that Solomon built gets destroyed. And there's another one that's built. And that's the one where, where, where Jesus is, is hauled to. And John chapter 11, verse 47. Let's go ahead and read. It says, And so the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered the council and said, What are we to do? They're trying to figure out how to deal with the problem of Jesus. What are we to do? For this man performs many signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him. And the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. So here is this collision of two power groups. You have Rome who occupies and has a certain amount of power and authority. And then you have the, the, the rulers and, the, temple and the, the chief priests and all of them who have religious authority. And they're in this place of tension because of Jesus. They're afraid that the Romans are going to be afraid of an uprising. So they're going to come and squelch everything and take away what the chief priests have. And so there's this place of tension between these, these world powers. He says, but one of them, Caiaphas, who was the high priest that year, said to them, you know nothing at all. I just hear him saying a nice smug voice. You know nothing at all. Nor do you understand that it is better for you. He has no idea what he's saying. It is better for you that one man should die for the people. Not that the whole nation should perish. 
He did not say this on, accord, on his own accord, but being a high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation, not only for the nation only, but also together into one, the children of God who were scattered abroad. So from that day on, they made plans to put him to death. So here they are on Mount Moriah. The people who are the authorities, the chief priests, make the decision that Jesus is the one that has to die. They're the ones right there in the same spot. In the same spot, they make the decision that Jesus is the one that has to die. When we go back and we look at Exodus, and, and as the people, the Hebrew people come out, the, they all slaughter a lamb, and, and the, the lamb provides the Passover, and death and destruction don't hit them. We have all this beautiful lamb imagery that's all through here. But here's what we see. We see now. We see now what God was doing. That we see the prophecy that God would provide a lamb. That we understood that, that the death and destruction had to come to an end. That there would be a Passover lamb who would not just take away the sin of a household, but take away the sin of the world. And now all of a sudden we begin, we get the picture, we get what's going on. That one statement from John the Baptist, he can look at Jesus and say, behold the Lamb of God. And then now we get the fullness of what he was saying. He wasn't saying that Jesus was just gentle and approachable or are calm and tender. He was talking about this thing that had been prophesied all this time before. That all this, that this, the death and destruction had to be dealt with. And here in that same place, then a, a person in authority makes a decision of who needs to die on behalf of the nation. And Caiaphas, in choosing to protect his own power, chooses to put Jesus to death. See, now we see the weight of what we see in 2 Corinthians 5.19. That God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ. That God provided himself a lamb. It wasn't just a man. It was God himself providing the, the, the need for the death and destruction and all the violence and the hate and the rage to come to an end. And it comes to this beautiful climax right there in that same area, in that same region of Moriah. See, God was in Christ. Reconciling the world to himself, not counting people's sins against them. And he has committed to us this message of reconciliation. When we sing that Jesus is the lamb, we are singing and declaring this truth. That death and destruction were met at this place with what Jesus did. And it is now covered and it is now dealt with. 
we are bringing in that truth and we are hanging on to it with all our might that Jesus is the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. In fact, this this morning, that's our bottom line. I couldn't find a stronger one than what John himself said, that Jesus is the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. When we see this, let's, let's remember that God, God, there's no, no place too obscure He can't reach to. That God will meet you where you need to be met, and He'll take you where you need to be to, to get things moved forward in a place. That your relationship can be with him what it needs to be. God loves you and he is for you. And Jesus is the one who's done it all. See, in this series, what we want to happen is that when we see everywhere that Jesus is revealed, then we can begin to see Jesus revealed everywhere. He's at work in our lives. And when our eyes open to begin to see him revealed through all the scriptures, we then can begin to have the Holy Spirit show us that he's at work in each of us as the body of Christ that we see as, as I connect with you there's a there's a little bit more of Jesus revealed to me and as I connect with you there's a little bit more of Jesus revealed to me that's how we grow in Christ we see more and more of Jesus every day thanks for listening to this week's message from Celebration Church We hope you'll stay connected by following us online. You can find us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter.